You are listening to Voces, a Jolt Action political podcast. Jolt Action is the largest Latinx civic engagement organization in Texas, building a movement of young Latinx to transform the Lone Star State. Bienvenidos. Mi nombre es Antonio Arellano, and I lead Jolt Action. On this episode of Voces, we are talking about breaking barriers. And amongst Latino voices in this country, and in particular in Texas, there's no bigger voice than Rosie Castro. She's been breaking down barriers for generations, and now her children are picking up the torch and transforming America. To talk about the next generation of political power in America, I'm joined by Rosie herself. Hey, Rosie, how's it going? Hi, fine, Antonio. Listen, I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for making time to join us on Voices. I want to begin, Rosy, by talking about the early work in Texas. You've been doing this for quite some time, and I want to know what filled your fight. Why did you get involved in, in, in democracy and in, in getting involved in building the power of Latinos in Texas? Well, I think like many young people, I became convinced at a very early age that the only way we could make a difference in our communities was through the democratic process. And at that time, um, I'm in high school in the 60s. I graduated about 65 uh, and then began college. And one of the things that was very significant at that time for Mexican-Americans in particular, that the college-going rate for us was at 4%. And the dropout rate in Texas was at 80%. So from the education standpoint and every other major statistics on our quality of life, there was just a very negative uh, way that institutions dealt with us. We were dealing with systemic racism. As you know, the racism of the past that had taken land away from Mexicanos that had resulted in the death of Mexicanos so that that land could be acquired. So many things that we had seen in terms of police brutality at the time. There was a case in Dallas of a 12-year-old boy who had been shot in the back of a police car as while the police played Russian roulette with him. Uh, that was the Santos Rodriguez case, I believe. And we had had some cases in San Antonio, and it just on and on. Our statistics in terms of health sometimes was parallel to those statistics of foreign countries that were third world countries. And any way that you looked, nutrition, for example, one of the major national stage, television stations at the time had done a look at food and nutrition in San Antonio and found that many of the deaths of our children, of infants, were due to malnutrition because of the inability of our folks to be paid well enough to be able to feed their children. There were just all sorts of institutional racism, a lot of blockages that other people had tried to fight. But unfortunately, our voter registration was still very low. Our voting patterns were very low. And remember that it hadn't been long since we were still, we were not having to pay poll taxes in Texas. That had depressed um, the voting strength of Mexican-Americans as well. The other thing, there were 
there were different other barriers in voting. For example, if you wanted to run for office, you had to pay a certain fee. Some of that was based, for example, on a percentage of the amount that a congressman earned, for example, if you wanted to run for Congress. So there were so many things set up as barriers to our political participation that many young people and some that were not totally young decided that it was time that we tried to do something about the situation that we were living under. Now, at that time, the the control of Texas is under the Democratic Party. And uh, one of the biggest problems that was we encountered there was the fact that we would always be redistricted in such a way that Latinos could not get representation. So again, there were so many fronts that you had to fight on. Many young people decided to get involved and basically were saying, ya basta, it's time for these things to change. There's no reason for us as Texans, us as citizens to be second-class citizens. And, you know, that's primarily what made me get involved besides that was that I had gone to Catholic school all my life, 12 years. The gospel told us that we needed to to be able to look out for our brothers, to look out for one another. And the, the gospel of justice, those were the kinds of things that impelled me to try to get involved in any way that I could. You know, you talk about the quality of life and you talk about education, systemic racism. All of these things are still very prominent today and are still challenges that our community are are battling with today, right? The access to secondary education and then the insurmountable student debt that Latinos take on to, to get, uh, you know, that secondary education. And then the quality of life, we talk about healthcare access and how Latinos here in Texas are the most uninsured out of anybody. And right now, disproportionately impacted by this global pandemic, there's been so much that has come out of the 60s and out of the Chicano movement that has perpetuated us forward, but a lot of work that still needs to be done, right? How do you see this next generation moving the line forward? Oh, absolutely. I think if you look at just one area, uh, education, you can look at how far behind we were in the 60s. You can look at us today, and the state of Texas still ranks about 48th in the nation when it comes to education, and that's er education at every level. Now, we've had some improvement, of course, you know, in terms of more of our kids are graduating from high school, more going to college not still not graduating at the numbers you want to see, but all of that, that whole area of education from K through, uh, and even before pre-K through graduate school, that all still has to be dealt with right now, you know, because we all know that to come out of poverty, one of the single most influential things that will help you to do that is education, is being able to get a good education so that you can then earn the kind of income you need to support your family. There's still, like you said, so many different areas. Yes, there's been a lot of changes. For example, through the work that Willie Velasquez and Southwest Voter did many years ago, and through the work that's happening now, we have a lot more elected officials, and every year we build that number of Latinos that are registered to vote and that are voting. Uh, and that's been very heartening. I think 
one of the things that we can see now and today is the kind of work that Jolt, Top, many of these organizations, many of you have done to increase that number of people that are voting and that are registered to vote. Without that, we go nowhere. I see a lot of hope because I see again a parallel to the 60s. There's a good parallel and a bad parallel, but the good parallel is that young people have taken up the torch and they're saying basta and they're doing things about it in ways that we never could. For example, you have tools at your disposal this podcast, you know, the, the computers, you have many different technical advances that we didn't have. If we wanted to communicate with people, you'd have to pick up a phone or, you know, you, you had Chicano newspapers, uh, things like that. But it was not an instant communication. It took a while. You have all these tools that give you the ability to reach out to more people in places that had not been reached before. And I think that that's one of the things that will help a lot in making sure that our communities are going to get more of their fair share. It's going to help make sure that as we are voting for representatives that believe in our ideals that believe in fighting for our communities and that believe in being progressive about what is needed in this country. As we see that happening, then we're going to see a much brighter future for all of the Latinos and not only Latinos, but people of color and all the people of the United States. You know, you're absolutely right. And I agree with you so much in the sense that Nowadays, this generation has so much access through social media and digital organizing at their fingertips that we can truly transform not just a state's political outcomes, but national political outcomes and and begin to discuss important issues that impact us all at just a few clicks away, right? And, and, and it's powerful. And we, we need to make sure that we're harnessing that for the greater good of our society. Now, you talk about how back then, and you mentioned this very briefly, you said Texas was controlled by the Democratic Party. And I want to talk about that because now when you talk about the Democrats controlling Texas politics, it's almost like you're wishing on a star. It's almost like that's impossible. That's People think that that's, you know, a craziest, a wild dream, right? But we need to remember that not too long ago, that was true, right? We had, the Democratic Party had full control of the state. And yes, politics were a little bit different, but it was possible. And it's it's not out of the question to get back to that space. Talk to me about what happened and what you think is needed to regain power for the Democratic Party in Texas. Well, one of the things that happened back then is that you really had a split in the Democratic Party. You had a conservative Democrat and you had a more liberal Democrat. The conservative Democrats were the ones that were in control of the state power. And consequently, for example, when I was still in college, I was asked by State Senator Joe Bernal to go before the Senate committee to look at the right to vote at 18. When I started out, we didn't have the right to vote at 18. And the Texans were not about to make that right. Um, you know, They were not about to give us that right. There were very conservative people who were 
um, against having, they wanted Mexican-Americans to vote for them. You had a patron system, but they did not want to include us in the issues that needed to be included or in any discussion of those issues. Consequently, the worst that they got about excluding people, not only Latinos, not only Mexican-Americans, but African-Americans and people of color, the worst they got about doing that, then they started to lose any kind of support from our communities. And probably some of this goes back to 1968 when you have Johnson who pushes for uh, bills that are more inclusive for civil rights litigation and civil rights bills, the South, as you know, then becomes very conservative, and that's when you have a Republican takeover. And what happened then was that the conservative Democrats, who had given us so much grief, became Republicans. You had John Tower, you, I mean, John Connolly, who had been a Democrat. You know, Rick Perry was a Democrat. Uh, and they jumped over to the Republican Party. I think it was the the uh, the year that Joaquin, my son Joaquin, joined, uh, became a state legislator. That year was the first year that you started to see a majority of Republicans in the legislature. They were taking over the legislature. And of course, the governor was a Republican, too. That wasn't that long ago. When you think about in the 90s, you know, we still had some ability to elect Democrats to a state level, higher level of office. And then in 2000 to 2010 and to now, you see that dissipate. I think we'll go back to the day when we will see more Democrats elected, because just like the the conservative Democrats did in their day, they got so extreme. Uh, What has happened to the Republican Party in Texas, in my opinion, is that they've gotten so extreme. Uh, You know, you have people defending QAnon. You have people um, that don't want to open up opportunity for minorities. Consequently, the more they hoard, you have people that go ahead and allow uh, Secretary of State, for example, uh, who has who has not had a date for when he is supposed to be tried. Uh, you have that kind of thing going on with Republicans that is so extreme that you will have more and more people not wanting to be part of that. Plus, the the statistics, as you know, favor the growth of people of color in the state of Texas, and that should make a difference as well. Rosie, uh, we have a governor now that has tried to prioritize what he's calling election integrity, this legislative session, which we know is codified voter suppression, right? Yes, yes. Talk to me about the dangers of trying to manipulate election integrity and incorrectly claim that there's voter fraud running rampant in Texas? One of the things, one of the reasons that's done, first of all, is because you want to intimidate voters. You want to make sure that they don't vote. Um, That's such an anti-democratic thing to do. Um, That's why it's part of the extremists that instead of being a party that would um, welcome more voters and increase the turnout and know that that's 
people participating in democracy, you do suppress that vote so that you can stay in power. And I think that the longer that you do that, the more you're going to have people fighting against that. Uh, and I'm hopeful that what we're going to see on a national level is some bills that will destroy some of the worst parts of the voter suppression that we've seen. At least that's being talked about now. But, you know, we've seen things like the voter purges just a couple of years ago based on nothing. I mean, numbers that were not real, just taking people off the voter rolls. To me, one of the things, having been a, a interim dean at a community college, what drove me crazy when we went to the idea of voter having to show an ID, which to me is ridiculous if you're registered to vote, but the fact that you can use a gun permit but not a student ID. How in the world does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. And so many of these things that are set up are going to come tumbling down. And they're going to come tumbling down not only because of the national level, but because of the pressure, I think, that people like MALDEF, uh, the Texas Rural Legal Aid, ACLU, all of these groups and all the groups, progressive groups that have been working towards taking apart this racism that we see in voter uh, turnout, that's going to make an impact. That's going to take away, sooner or later, a lot of these mal-intentioned kinds of bills and structures that we have seen in voter suppression. And again, I think that's also very due to a lot of the young people that understand that and that are pushing against those bills. Voices is made possible by listeners like Tu. Please visit jolttx.org slash donate to help fuel the fight for progressive change in Texas. Now back to Voices. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're right on the money here. Uh, in 2018, after you saw a massive increase of Latino vote, of young people voting, there was a voter purge attempt to get rid of as many people as possible. And when you looked at that voter purge, the majority of the surnames of the people on that list were Latino folks, right? That's who they wanted to get rid of. And, um, and now in 2020, again, we see a dramatic increase of participation amongst communities of color and young people. People. We saw 500,000 first-time Latino voters come out during early vote in the 2020 election. And now on the heels of that, you see election integrity trying to be making its way towards the priority list of the governor of Texas. Uh, we know what this is. It's veiled voter suppression, and we won't stand for it. You talked about our partner, Maldev. Uh, Jolt is actually also working with Maldev on redistricting, another major battle that is brewing in Texas. We're part of the Texas Latino Redistricting Task Force, and we're in the middle of a redistricting fight in Texas for fair maps to end map manipulation. Let's talk about that, Rosie. Who's going to set the maps for the next 10 years? Well, I was hoping that we would have a different turnout in this last election so that we might have more folks elected that would do a fair map. We have to fight the good fight. Uh, whether that was a Democratic controlled back in the 60s or today, um, because the party in power tries to do two things. One, suppress the districts that minority can represent, will be able to represent. They try to keep their own party in power. And then they also 
attempt to squeeze as many people as possible that are that they believe are not going to vote for their party into districts that will only select one person rather than the three that they should have had access to. It's a fight every time, but it's a fight that bettered, if not totally won, on two fronts. One of them is that people stay on top of it. I saw that you have let people know when the hearings are being held by educating people, because redistricting can be a difficult thing to really grasp. Uh, for people. You know, if you're not totally into politics all the time, it seems like an easy thing, but it's not because then you start playing with numbers, community of interest, census, all of these things. And after a while, you're like, oh, I don't know. But what you're doing is educating people to the importance that we can't be quiet about it because then we get less. And the other thing too is the other side of what will help us will be the courts. Maldef always winds up having to sue, and other groups that join Maldef in the lawsuits, they're able to get us a little bit better, you know, redistricting, a little bit better districts. Sometimes if you look at those districts, and I think that the 23, District 23, which is, that's the district that also covers San Antonio up to almost Laredo, that one has gone Democrat- Republican, Democrat, Republican for several years now. If you look at the size of that district and how it stretches, it's just incredible. It doesn't make sense. Um, And I think that, you know, there's many others that way. The problem is that, you know, there's so many rules that are put in place. For example, one of the rules about you have to go to a hearing in person and make statements in person, that in a COVID time makes no sense whatsoever. Um, earlier when you were talking about, you know, the number of young people and the number of people, more Latinos that have registered and voted, what's amazing is that they did so, we did so in a year of COVID. That's amazing, you know, cause you were going out there and risking that you could potentially be catching illness. Same thing with the hearings that you know, I think we're facing, but I think that cannot deter us in finding ways to make sure that we plead our case for equitable redistricting. Because once again, we're going to come out with a majority population. We're entitled to more, you know, congressional seats, and somehow we don't wind up getting it. So we've got to keep the pressure up. So there is absolutely no question on anybody's mind that the population growth of the Latino population in Texas has been increasing year over year and over the last decade, perhaps the largest increases out of any ethnic group in the state. And we are now just asking for parity between population growth and representation. If there's additional congressional seats that belong to us, give them to us. If there's additional Senate seats, House seats that belong to us because of our population size and expansion, give them to us. And um, you can bet your bottom dollar, Rosie, that us and Maldef, the Texas Latino Redistricting Task Force, are going to be um, making sure that we that we win just that for our community. Let me let me talk to you uh, about the population growth that you've been experiencing over the last couple of years. Latinos are now on the trajectory to become the largest sector of the population in Texas, to become the majority of the population. And with that comes a lot of political power. But when we talk to Latinos, they often don't even realize that they are on the cuffs of being the majority. 
porque they don't see themselves in the governor's mansion and they don't see themselves reflected in the, in the chambers of power. How do we make sure that Latinos realize you're on the cuffs of greatness? You can begin to shape the future of Texas and this country um, as we become come into the majority of the population. Well, I think we've got to keep broadcasting it. We've got to keep writing about it. We've got to keep doing videos. We've got to keep doing podcasts. We've got to do all of those things because even just a few years ago, I didn't realize that the schools in Dallas, Dallas, Texas, were already majority Latino. You know, I mean, I, I know that in San Antonio, but I didn't think Dallas. And so, you know, we don't always pay attention to what's not right at our doorstep. I've seen statistics and you see that areas you never thought had that many Latinos, suddenly there's all this Latinos. Houston, you know, uh, is a world-class city that looks like the whole world. Suddenly we find ourselves that it's a really changing time. And I think that young people understand that a lot better than some of the old timers because we lived in a time that, sometimes was seemed very hopeless and sometimes seemed like, you know, no matter what you do, you could not get away. You could not get ahead. You would not have the opportunity. I think our young people now can see the opportunities, can see, even though you may not always see the face of a governor that's Latino in Texas, there's one in New Mexico. You know, you can see people that have run for office on a national level. You can see the fact that we have, our education levels have grown a great deal more. Um, so I think that, you know, and I always tell people, we need to be writing our own stories because you don't see it. And, and especially my son, Joaquin, always talks about this. You don't see our own stories on film and, you know, on documentaries. And we need to make sure we increase that. Uh, we need to put the pressure on the people who, publish books and the people who do the films to make sure that we're included because we're part of the American structure. Um, and so we need to have people that are advocating that. The Hispanic journalist media people do a really good job of that too. Uh, but I think that the biggest thing is that wherever we go, we need to tell our stories. We need to tell our children those stories. That's very important. And from the young perspective, that young people look to their elders and find their stories. I think, you know, what you would find, sometimes there are very heroic stories on what our elders encountered and what they were able to overcome. You know, it's just incredible that they were able to survive. You think about a mother who was a single parent in the 1950s and 60s that raised six children by herself, you know, and there's story after story of our families with large children that still manage to do very well. We need to tell those stories. We need to make sure that people realize the heights that we have reached given the very little that we had. Uh, and I think it's happening more and more. I think that we're seeing people recognize more and more that the Latino community is the major minority community in the United States. Sometimes I think we forget that, but that is the truth. That is the fact. And I think what, what's happening is that we're coming late 
to the game of understanding our past. Um, you know, just recently you see the UT professors and other professors who talked about the Texas Rangers back in the early 1900s and the killings of innocent men and young young men, boys, at their hands and many other things that were perpetuated against our people. You have to understand that to understand where we are now. Much like the African experience of slavery, we have an experience that happened after um, the United States ceded the Southwest to, from Mexico, I mean, the Mexico ceded the Southwest to the United States. That Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which was supposed to guarantee certain rights for us, was broken right off the bat. You know, we didn't keep, we weren't allowed to keep our language, our land, and all the rest of the things that we were promised. So we need to know those things, not to just, oh, poor me, oh, look what happened. No, I'm not saying that at all, but to understand why we aren't further along than we should be, as we should be, and to understand it so that we will never get into situations where we allow things to happen to our community that are not good for our community. I have a lot of hope, though, because I see a great many of people that are really trying to make a difference right now. It's it's phenomenal, and I'm really happy as a 73-year-old person. You know, I know that I'm on the other side of getting ready to not be here one day, but I feel that, you know, my grandchildren will be part of all of that that benefits our community and benefits the United States totally as well. Well, you've already contributed so much. I mean, I think that a lot of what we are building on is attributed to your contributions, and we are so grateful to you and so happy that we still have you here and hopefully for many, 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 many more years <laughs> to continue to um, to tap you for your wisdom and your and your expertise. And with that, I want to talk about, you know, the attention of the nation is on Arizona and on Georgia and yes. wow, right? Oh yes. my goodness. And people need to understand that that happened over a decade, right? It took years of organizing, year-round organizing, relentless organizing by communities of color and intentional investments. And that can happen in Texas too, but it requires the same time of the same type of intensity and the same type of intentionality to invest in our state. Unfortunately, it, those resources don't always trickle into Texas. It, Texas is not as attractive to national donors um, and, and, and political parties don't prioritize the state in the same way that they prioritize other strategies. I want to talk to you about rural areas in Texas, because let's face it, Georgia fits in Texas three times over. We can fit that state and our state tres veces. And so the Latino voter in North Texas thinks way differently than the Latino voter in the Rio Grande Valley, and then the Latino voter in El Paso, and then the Latino voter in East Texas. So what can we do to better understand the key voting motivators of Latinos across our state to better activate and mobilize them? Well, first of all, I think we have to 
be sure that we're going into those places. I know I went into a small county one time and I had been invited by a group there. And, you know, as we talked, one of the laments was, well, nobody comes here when they run for office. We're such a little rural area. You know, we never see any campaigning. Uh, And so one of the things I suggested is, look, you know, nowadays you've got the Internet. You may not see people come through here, but you can see them and you can ask them questions. And, you you know, you need to say to them, you know, if you're not coming here when you run for governor or lieutenant governor to represent us, you need to make sure you're on that Internet and you're talking with us, you're communicating with us. And I think that's one of the first things that we need to do is to not forget these people are there, not to not to take them for granted, not to think because they are social economic class or certain race that they're going to vote a certain way. We need to reach out to them. And I think that that's the first thing that we need to do. The other thing is that one of the things that's difficult about the rural areas is that they're facing incredible problems some of them very close to what we saw in the 60s. For example, healthcare. You know, in the rural areas, they've lost hospitals. I think I read there's what, something like 12 hospitals in those areas in Texas that are gone. I mean, so you have the kind of needs in rural areas that when we start talking about urban issues, they're not relating to. Yes, we may need healthcare in urban areas, and there are pockets of of areas and urban areas that that don't reach our people. But when you talk about rural areas, there's a whole lot of folks that are being missed. So I think that, you know, we can develop strategies first in the communication and the visiting, and then also of looking at those issues and seeing how we can help to mitigate what is happening. And by we, I think I mean also the bigger cities, you know, that are near some of these areas For example, I saw on some of these trips as well, what's very sad that the lack of jobs, you know, if somebody graduates from college, they almost have to move away from that area because there's not the kind of jobs that are needed. So if the bigger cities are able to do some job training, some recruitment, are able to look at what could be put out in terms of economic development in some of these areas, that would help. All of us are going to have to do a job of being innovative and creative about how do we reach out to these, uh, or to these rural areas um, because I really fear the kinds of problems that they're encountering have been left alone for too long. Uh, same thing has happened with the Valley. I think the Valley has to be, we really need to do more work in the Valley with our folks, with Latinos, um, because there hasn't been the kind of opportunities there that um, they should be getting. So I think, you know, there's a lot of rural strategies that we need to look at uh, without forgetting the strategies for the urban areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I I agree with you. I think that it's it's in our best interest to make sure that we are doing our due diligence to elevate the issues, the concerns that exist in those communities, and to pay attention to them, to make sure that um, that they are completely involved in the process and, and that they feel represented and in the in the civic engagement process, so they can come out and get involved as well um, and drive our state forward. And you know. I want to transition now um, to talk about you being a trailblazing Latina because there's so many women, Rosie, right now 
so many young Latinas that are really, they are voting at higher rates than their Latino male counterparts. Uh, they're voting at record numbers compared to their non-Latina female counterparts. Young Latinas are taking note that it's time to step up to the plate and deliver for their families to win back respect and representation for their communities. And I feel like in a lot of ways, it's been folks like you that have set the example of like, orale, when we need something for our community, it's on us as women uh, to step up to the plate and make sure that our community, our families have what they deserve and what they need. Talk to me about the role that women play in politics and Latinas in particular in this new era of Texas politics? Well, you know, unfortunately, Antonio, like Latina women have played a role in politics forever, but they've always been behind, you know, the male. Um, There's so many examples in San Antonio of a Latino politician, male politicians that were able to do very good things, but it was because there was a missus often that organized a lot of the other women and they went out and they worked hard and they got that person elected. Now we're seeing, which is great, Latina women themselves that are running. And it was just two years ago that we saw the first two Mexican-American congresswomen in Texas. Wow, you know, that blows your mind. It took so long. Latina women are all about family. You know, that's that's one of our cultural traits. We're going to continue to always be there. And hopefully we're going to see a lot more young Latinas running. I think that for a long time, too, Latinas have had to concentrate on being able to have the kind of uh, economic stability to help their, their families succeed. And I think where you see that is the fact that it is known that uh, Latinas have one of the highest rates of small businesses ownership in the country. I think given that you're going to see more and more Latinas uh, reach out into the political forum and actually run for office themselves. We've got some role models. You know, I hear people say, well, I didn't have a role model. Well, now you have to look at Veronica in El Paso and Sylvia in Houston. And, you know, there's governors now and that are Latinas. And there's not enough yet, but there's no excuse to say, I don't know how to do it. A lot of groups, gratefully, are also having seminars on how to be a candidate, how to run for office. And that is very helpful, too. Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. We are hopeful that in the coming years, we will see more and more of this, that Latina women will only continue to engage at higher rates. And that, I mean, hopefully one day we'll have a Latina governor and Latina lieutenant governor and Latina uh, attorney general. And uh, that would be great. I mean, the men have had a great run. Let's let the women run it for a little bit, right? You know, Rosie, I could talk to you forever, um, and I'm so grateful that that you've given us a little bit of your time today. Thank you so much for for it. We really appreciate it. But you know, you've you've done so much throughout your life, and are genuinely, I think, a a Texas legend and and, and a local hero in so many ways. But as you look ahead, what is the legacy that you are leaving behind? Well, I think, you know, I often look at that uh, when people ask, and one of the first things, of course, for me is my sons. The fact that I have twin sons that are both uh, have always been involved in 
uh, being public servants and making sure that we try to bring opportunities to all our people and that they they do so strategically. They look at the areas that are problems and they try to make sure that they can introduce uh, solutions to those problems. And whether that is issues of immigration or what is going on now, I have one of my sons that it will be an impeachment manager. That's my first thing is that, you know, I have sons that, that will continue to do, uh, I think, good work with our communities. Um, then I, I'm, I'm happy that I've had a chance to be able to do things with women, particularly Latina women. Uh, having been a mother that had to bring up my children on my own for several years, I understand how hard that can be. And so um, I've tried to help as much as possible uh, here in the city with those issues. What I have to say, though, you know, is that one of the things I'm really so happy to see is the work that you have done with Joel, uh, the innovative kind of work that you're doing, the work that other progressive groups are doing that is really going to make a difference both in the short term and in the longer term. You know, I, I think sometimes when, when people talk about, you know, how are we going to make some strides here? You want something to happen quickly. You want it to happen tomorrow, but it doesn't happen that way a lot of times. Like you said, it takes 10 years for Georgia and Arizona. It, we've been working at it now in Texas for a while, and it's going to happen, but I think it's because of groups like yours, like TOPS, like Maldiv, uh, and the individuals uh, and students, uh, all of us together that are going to create uh, the new opportunities in Texas. Rosy Castro, a trailblazing Latina in Texas and one of the leading voices in American politics today. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode of Voices was recorded at our Jolt Action headquarters in Houston, Texas. We drop new episodes of Voices every other week on Wednesdays. If you like our content, please be sure to subscribe and share. Learn more about our mission to empower the Latinx community in Texas and find out how you can get involved at joltx.org. That's J-O-L-T-T-X dot O-R-G.